Hi, and welcome back to To Think Minimum, the Technology Policy Institute's podcast. It's Friday, June 25th, 2021. I'm your host, Scott Walston, President and Senior Fellow at TPI. I'm joined by my co-hosts, TPI Senior Fellow Sarah O oh and TPI President Emeritus and Senior Fellow Tom Leonard. Today, we are delighted to have with us economist Michael Katz. Michael is Professor Emeritus at the Haas School of Business and Department of Economics, where he was the Saren Chair in Strategy and Leadership at the Institute for Business Innovation. He has also served as the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Economic Analysis in the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Justice Department from September 2001 through January 2003. He was the Chief Economist at the Federal Communications Commission from January 1994 through January 1996. He's published extensively on the economics of network industries, intellectual property, telecommunications policy, and antitrust enforcement. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And if I could, I'd like to add one more thing to Absolutely. of me. And that is that I have worked and have ongoing engagements with several different big tech companies, media companies, telecom companies. So I just want to disclose that. Well, you know, while some of them are confidential, so I'm not going to say particular names. I just want people <laughs> to be aware of that so they can be appropriately skeptical when they listen to me. And, you know, my position always is don't believe what I'm saying because I say it. Believe it because when you think about it, you see the arguments are correct. That's always good advice. Today we're talking antitrust, which is a hot topic. We're seeing a huge shift in how academics, policymakers, and practitioners think about antitrust and what its goals should be. President Biden just appointed Lena Khan as chair of the Federal Trade Commission. And even a few years ago, she would have been considered to be fairly outside mainstream thinking. And yet, here she is as chair. Not commenting on her specifically, but you know, what do you think is driving this change in, in how people are thinking about antitrust? And are some kind of reforms necessary? So... I'm going to go start with the last part. I think some reforms are necessary, and we can mm-hmm. go back and talk about that. I mean, one thing when you say changing the way people are thinking, it's changing the way some people are thinking. Right. Um, I think there are a whole bunch of us who've sort of been thinking the same way for a long time, but us who still think that um, reforms are necessary. Like, I mean, if you get into sort of the, the sociology or psychology of it, I think... I've actually always been amazed at which people were just fawning over big tech and thought I could do no wrong. And I always thought it wrote some of the statements coming out of big tech. Oh, one more I think I should add to my disclaimer. Well, some of them have retained me. What I'm saying is not necessarily something they will endorse. Um, <laughs> but it really was back like the heyday when GM used to say what's good for GM is good for America. Well, we've got big tech doing the same. And I think other people have said this, that part of the backlash and I don't think this is the case with Lena Khan, but with some of the backlash, I think it is people sort of fell for this, oh, we're wonderful, everything's great, and now they feel duped and they're sort of going to the other extreme. But look, I think you know, the big thing is people, part of it is they just look and they see how big and how successful these companies are, and that sort of captured a certain part of the public's imagination. So I think that's where it's become more of an issue politically than usual, because, you know, usually with the exception of very few antitrust cases, antitrust sort of proceeds in obscurity. You think the Microsoft, really not very many others. I mean, AT&T, Time Warner, supposedly with this huge public case, but I think that's just because the media industry is interested in itself. (laughs) Um, Anyway, but that's it. But let's talk maybe more on substance, right? I think a lot of us feel that what's basically happened is antitrust law in America is essentially common law. 
right? The fundamental statutes for antitrust are very short and very basic. And that's actually been a strength because it's made them flexible and enduring. But it means that from the outset, Congress has relied on the courts to fill the lobby. And there's been this common law evolution. And I think what's happened, though, if you look the last, I'm not sure the right number of years, maybe 40, 50, so the courts have really moved to the right. And it's often called the Chicago School and say they've adopted it. But I think that the courts are out of line with mainstream economic thinking. I think they're also out of line with a lot of populist thinking. And so now there's pressure for Congress to act. And I think some sort of legislation is needed, and I think it's appropriate. I mean, in fact, you know, there's Supreme Court decisions will say this. They say, look, here's how we're interpreting the law. And if Congress doesn't like it, Congress should step in. And I think we're at a time where that needs to be done. Because as I said, I think the, the courts have just sort of gone off in the wrong direction. So you're kind of describing a, I mean, there's a situation where, I guess you're saying the courts have gone too far to the right or to a Chicago school view. But then there's kind of a populist backlash against that, that has gone too far in the other direction. So what, what, what is the middle area that you're trying to go for? Because it seems, if I'm, if I'm hearing you right, you think kind of both sides have gone too far in the wrong directions, or they've gone too far in the opposite directions, and that's left yeah. us without a middle. Yeah, and I, remember, and I can't remember the names, but I remember it was a late night host was interviewing a basketball player and talking about how one of his, the basketball player's colleagues had made a rap then CD, and another one was doing something else he wasn't really qualified to do. And then the host just turned to his guest and said, well, what are you going to do that's stupid? And I sort of feel like the left said, it's our turn to be wrong. Now, look, I really despair of this, actually, because the middle ground, I think, is, I've always said, antitrust is really fact-specific, and you sort of really dig in case by case, and it's very difficult to do that. And I do worry that this sort of middle ground just may not be feasible. I mean, what you have instead, you know, I think where you see the extremes on the left and right are people say, well, here's the presumption. And I'm either going to presume that all vertical integration is bad or I'm going to presume all vertical integration is good. Neither one of those views is correct. But at the same time, you said to me, okay, how can you tell good vertical integration from bad if you're going to be in the middle? It is extremely difficult, and there is a question whether the courts are up to it. So let me, let me just ask you to expand a little on your statement that, because I think this is part of what we're discussing, on your statement that the courts have departed from mainstream economic thinking. Do you want to give a few examples of that or put a, little, a, little, a few more specifics? All right, well, so some of the specifics, let me sort of mention, I think, the, Merrick, like the views that are in Ohio versus American Express is one where, I mean, the courts have declared, well, you have to do market definition if it involves vertical practices. And more generally, the courts have adopt, come close to adopting the view that, you know, all vertical practices are good. And I think economics just clearly doesn't support that. And I think... Again, I don't, I'm not of the view that you know, all vertical practices are bad. Maybe, in fact, the majority of the time you see it, they're good. But I think they've just built in way too strong a presumption, A, that the practices are good, and that B, this necessity of market definition and particular ways of doing it. The thing on market definition, I'm not sure is actually a left versus right issue. I think maybe that's economists versus the rest of the world. But I do think we've gotten to the point where the formalities of market definition are actually many cases, an obstacle to sound analysis, not an aid. 
you know, again, I believe you have to do some sort of market definition in the sense you need to know who the competitors are and you, you want to understand how competition works in a market. But I think formal market delineation is sort of out of control. And I think the courts, this is a longstanding issue, so continue to put too much weight on it. But I think the Supreme Court in, in Amex, with their also their declaration that you have to define a two-sided market and then what that means in terms of assessing harm and how competition works, I don't think that's supported by the economic literature on two-sided markets. I think they've gone way beyond that. I also think the Brook Group tests for predation, if you look at it, don't really make sense. I will say, I'm going to just criticize everyone, including myself. I mean, you have problems on the other side, but as well. But, you know, say on the predation, they say, well, how are we going to determine if something's predatory pricing? Well, one of the things we're going to ask is, well, was there below cost pricing? And then was there some reason to believe that the firms would be able to recoup it? Well, first of all, just logically, that's a silly way to test things, because presumably if you have an economically rational firm, for whatever reason it prices below cost, it expects to be able to recoup it. So that's not a test that in any way distinguishes whether it was predation designed to harm competition and destroy competitors, or whether it was just a benign activity that was to try to build up a user base, because user bases can be very valuable in a a market with network effects. So I think part of it is the test itself just doesn't, actually, there's no economic logic underlying it. And then where they've also gone beyond the consensus is to basically say, make an empirical claim, which, oh, you never see predation, there's no such thing, and it can't happen, or almost never happen. And I don't think the court has any basis for saying that. What would you say would be a rational predatory pricing policy or approach to predatory pricing? So, and this is the thing about being this difficult ground stuck in the middle, I think. And I might have my PhD. Well, fortunately, it's a deep bill, so you can't do <laughs> my PhD. PhD taken away for saying this, but I think it may be at some point you do have to dig into intent. And, you know, economists don't like that. And why I say that is a lot of the, the markets we're interested in, right? We're interested in markets that are oligopolies, so they're going to tend to be markets with big economies of scale. And they're often going to be things like, you know, network effects or data effects or whatever. And the problem you get into in those markets is just a fundamental problem is in a market like that, it can certainly make sense to charge below cost prices, whatever your measure of cost, at least initially, to try to build up scale or you know, build up your network, build up your data, whatever. And that would be true even if that had no effect at all on your competitors. So I don't think you would want to label that as anti-competitive. That's called investment. <laughs> the problem is... If what you're investing in is a user base, almost certainly investing in your user base and making it larger means you're also making your rival's user base smaller. It doesn't have to be that, but that's, I think, vast majority of cases, that's what we're going to see. And so now we have this fundamental tension of saying, well, on the one hand, you're strengthening yourself and helping consumers in a good way, but on the other hand, you're weakening your rival. And I think it's extremely hard, in fact, I think impossible it certainly did have any sort of cost-based rule. And Joe Farrell and I have a paper trying to look at that. I think you that's a messy position, but you really have to dig into the specifics and try to figure out what the sort of dominant effects are. And, and I, the reason I say look at intent is partly because you know, I'm worried about what happens when a firm is just trying to compete and the next thing they know, they get slapped with treble damages for predation. And does that chill competition? So I think you need to do something to try to test for that. But looking, as I say, looking at costs alone 
is certainly not going to do it. I mean, it's interesting that you talk about market definition and the, the test for predation kind of one after the other. And it seems, sounds like there is a logic for the test too, for market definition, the SNP test. But you're saying that that's become an obstacle, maybe because people are trying to slice it too finely or throwing arguments back for them, not sure. But then the problem with the predation test is that it has no logic. And so both, <laughs> it seems like both sides of this have led to not good outcomes. Well, okay, but let's take the, the SNP test and ask what the logic is. I mean, so it makes some sense. If, if you start with the premise, you say, okay, I have to draw something that has zero one boundaries, right? You're either in the market or you're not. It may well be that the SNP test is the best we can do. The problem is you've started with something that fundamentally doesn't make sense in many markets. And look, in the, where I say it can be an obstacle, and I think it's some ways one of the most painful cases because it was just laid out so clearly was when DOJ tried to block PeopleSoft versus Oracle. And what the judge did in his opinion is he explained very carefully and clearly, intelligently, why it's essentially impossible to draw right line boundaries when you have differentiated products. But then rather than conclude, okay, so we shouldn't require the plaintiffs to do that because it can't be done and surely that doesn't mean everything's fine. He said, no, that means the government loses. You have a burden that almost by definition can't be met. And I think that's a ridiculous way to decide a case. And, you know, whether or not he's right as a matter of law, I don't know. I mean, I have my own doubts about why he did what he did. But holding that aside, if you say, well, he's right, that's what the law compels, then we should change the law, which actually reminds me of another one I'll say that's sort of equally ridiculous or maybe more so. One of the interpretations of the Amex case and what the Supreme Court said is that a two-sided transaction platform only competes against another two-sided transaction platform. It can't compete against, say, any sort of one-sided competitor. And then the, the most extreme version of that we've seen, I think it was Sabre versus Fair Logic. the judge said, look, both sides of the case agree that the party, these two entities compete. Everybody agrees they do, plaintiffs and defendants. But also, it's clear one of them is a two-sided transactions platform and the other is not a two-sided transaction platform. Therefore, as a matter of law, they don't compete. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I mean, I don't see how anyone can defend that. Do you think that there's been too much emphasis on two-sided markets as something special? Because, I mean, in some ways, everything is a two-sided market. A grocery store is a two-sided market. They buy their supplies from the farmers, not even the farmers, you know, some of the supplier, and then they're a platform for the people to come buy it. How do those differ from the other things that people are now saying are special because of two-sided markets? I mean, there are things that are different, but how important is it that we take those things into account? As an academic pursuit, two-sided markets are a useful way to think. I mean, it's a terrible name. Yeah, right. I actually went to lose very early on and said, I just want to let you know, my 12-year-old daughter thinks it's a terrible name. <laughs> tell you something. No, I think it, look, it is a problem. So I think, yes, they've identified some important forces. And if you go back and look at like early articles by Rocher and Troll, they actually say, look, a lot of these issues are out there before, but here's a particularly interesting combination of these issues. They don't claim this is something never before seen, right? And they did good work. And what's happened is people just grabbed onto two-sided markets and claim, oh yes, it's fundamentally different. Let's rethink everything. And they've done it in a lot of ways. They think that it sort of don't make sense. And so, yeah, I think it, just way too much has been made of it. 
as being just completely different. Again, so I think it's a useful lens and certainly to worry about the feedback effects and across the different sides of a platform are helpful. But to your point about isn't everything a two-sided market, I mean, that's a big problem, again, with something like um, what the Supreme Court has done where they said if you're a two-sided transaction platform, you're treated very differently than something that's not. Then the question, well, what's a two-sided transactions platform? And the Supreme Court itself seems to have no idea. So in Amex, it said, American Express, you're a two-sided platform because what do you do? You help merchants and consumers get together. You get paid only when they transact, which actually is false. But the Supreme Court said a lot of things in that case that are, they made up the fact. But predominantly, Amex gets paid a percentage of the transaction value when it occurs. Okay, so then along came the case remember it's Pepper versus Apple or Apple versus Pepper, recent Supreme Court case having to do with standing and such. And the court looked at that and neither the majority nor the dissent had any recognition that the App Store looks just like American Express at, the, at a high level description. Because what does the Apple App Store do? Well, they collect a percentage of the value of a transaction that happens between a seller and a buyer. So it's hard for me, impossible for me to conceive of a world where the, you know, Amex is a transactions platform, but the App Store is not. Yet, if you look at what the court then said in, in Apple Pepper, it's all completely inconsistent with their view of how two-sided markets work. So just to give an example, in Amex, one of the excuses they used for saying that the plaintiffs lost, and I should disclose for those who don't know, I was the DOJ's expert economic expert in Amex. But in that case, they said, look, what's, you know, there's this fundamental failing because you didn't look at two-sided price. You only looked at what happened to the price of the merchants. That also is a, a false statement by the Supreme Court. We did look at the two-sided price, and there's evidence that the two-sided price went up. And Justice Breyer talks about that in his dissent. But in any case, they said, look, it's critical. You have to look at the two-sided price because one side going up could be the other side going down. You've got to look at the net effects. You just can't look at one side in isolation. And yet in Apple v. Pepper, there actually is a statement, I can't remember if it's the majority or the dissent, that says, well, look, consumers will have their theory of harm. And sure, app developers may have another theory, but they're completely unrelated. And they're, you know, they're not coming from a common pool of funds or anything. They're just two separate things. Well, that's just completely inconsistent with what they said in Amex, where they said it's only, there's essentially only one price. And only one common. There's common fund and nothing else. So I think this line drawing and this attempt to use labels is actually just made a mess of things. And it's not even one where it's sort of left versus right, because I think plenty of people now on the right have said, well, wait a minute, things like excluding competitors because they're not two-sided markets, that's a problem. And this is one of the things where there does not seem to be a right-left divide, particularly maybe different reasons for yes. wanting what they want, but they want the same thing. If you were Lena Khan, say, uh, or you were head of the FTC, what would this mean for what you do now? Does this mean you try to bring cases or enforcement against companies and, and try to use different standards? Or is it about, I mean, is it really at a, at a higher level that you're still trying to change how we think about the questions? Different version of your question if people said, so, you know, what difference is it going to make that Lena Khan is there? Yeah, okay. I think the answer may be, not that much of a difference unless we have legislation. Because I think a lot of the things that she would like to do, as I understand it, limited exposure to her writings, they're not going to get through the courts. 
And I think a lot of people's view on a bunch of these big cases against big tech is ultimately they're going to fizzle by the time they get to appeal because of how the courts are. And I'm particularly since I'm involved in some of them, I won't comment on the merits, but I think that it's an assessment probably again shared by people on the left and right. The difference would be whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think everyone would agree, it'd be hard pressed getting through the courts. Now, if you ask me, what would I do? As I was head of the FTC, I think one of the things I would do, since it looks like they will get more resources, it is to try to do more, economists always call for more retrospective studies more industry studies, do more of the things that the Federal Trade Commission is empowered to do that justice is not. But in terms of bringing cases, a lot of people said, oh, yeah, the agencies have been scared away and they don't bring cases they otherwise would. But I think a bunch of it is just even if you brought the case, it wouldn't make any difference. For legislation, what do you think about bright line rules? Like some people are advocating for thresholds for market share or lower Hart Scott Rodino acquisition thresholds. That's one way to legislate bright line rules, but who knows what the line is? What kind of legislation would be a middle ground without being overly burdensome? So you've read a couple different kinds of thresholds. So the one about lowering the Hart Scott Rodino thresholds, that I would be in favor of, just because Fine, let's give the agencies a chance to look at at more things, particularly all the concern about acquisitions of potential or nascent competitors. But, you know, the case of we want to have sort of more bright line thresholds, say, for mergers. Actually, I'm against that. Again, it's a case I was in and I was in the Sprint T-Mobile merger and I testified as a witness retained by T-Mobile and, you know, my colleague and friend and co-author Carl Shapiro is retained by the states. And he wanted in that, the plaintiffs in that case wanted to rely on a presumption you know, based on concentration. And I said, but I don't think you have any basis for that in this market. And we put in some econometrics to look at differences in local markets and say, look, it doesn't change the behavior that you guys claim it does. I've talked to Carl about this subsequently. He says, well, but you know, there's all these problems econometrically, which I agree with that there are difficulties in it. But, I, but my comeback is, okay, but you don't even have any bad account. You have nothing other than to say, mine aren't good enough. Now, I may be setting myself up for the second half of this podcast, by the way. But, um, <laughs> but I think this is, as I say, where I struggle because I worry a lot about the thresholds because I just don't think we know enough to know where to set them. That said, I think it would be useful to have legislation to say to the courts, well, you know, you've set thresholds that are too high or too low, depending on what sort of things you're looking for. I mean, I, but I, it's more, I'm sort of, I guess more of a, I want there to be a presumption against presumptions perhaps of saying, you know, stop saying, you know, in advance what the right answer is and then have to sort of dig in. And, and then if you say, okay, dig, dig in, it's dig into what. And this is where what I'm proposing, I think falls apart potentially because at the agency level, they can do extremely sophisticated analysis. They have the time, the resources and the training of people. But a court just doesn't have that. And so that's why I will admit I'm sort of at a loss about what to do. But I just, other than trying to undo the bad presumptions, such as this one that, you know, any vertical practice must be good, I haven't seen a lot of really good presumptions other than when there's sort of this negative. That sounds, I mean, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned concerns about using antitrust as regulation. And that sounds like what you were saying now. I mean, 
it's hard because courts don't have the kind of resources and expertise necessary to ever do anything like that. Unless I'm misinterpreting what you were saying. So I don't want to put words in your mouth. Unless um, they're funny. I think, you know, <laughs> no, I think I agree with what you say, but well, I would say it is, the problem is we've said to the courts, okay, we want you to engage in some really fact-intensive exercise and weigh all these things. I guess maybe what I'd say is, as part of this, I think courts should have much greater reliance on the economic experts that are retained by the court and to try to help increase the expertise. And I think there are problems when you get to economic analysis so sophisticated that only the expert has any chance or an expert at the PhD economist has any chance of understanding it, because then we'll get all these fights about, well, is this the right expert for the court, et cetera. Did you say experts retained by the court? Yes. So that's very different from the way things normally happen. Yes. I mean, there are cases where judges have done it, and I've talked to a few, and they were quite pleased with it. No, I think they helped cut through some of the stuff. And I said, there's certain things where it may be so sophisticated, it's, it's just a problem because then people will start saying, well, Whatever the choice, the court's choice of experts is going to predetermine the outcome because it's all a judgment call. Mm-hmm. But the, and there, I look, there are always going to be things like that. But I would hope that if the court retained an expert, so like any expert would tell them things like the fact that prices have been falling over time does not prove the market is competitive, that that's just bad economics at the freshman economics level. I bring that example up because that's another thing where. Well, the Supreme Court was vague about it in Amex case, but the Second Circuit, which was the court that first heard the appeal of that case, said things like, well, output has gone up since the 1950s. I think they said prices have gone down. So that shows that whatever American Express is doing must be competitive. And that's just, I mean, this is complete nonsense as a matter of economics. And would hope at least on things like that, that any economic expert a court had would tell them, well, you can't write that. Here's why it's wrong. I mean, you might hope that that would come out in the, the adversarial process and what goes on in the courtroom. But, but can I just say one thing yeah. actually about antitrust? There's sort of, there's this thing about what, you know, is characterized as the Chicago school, even though people in Chicago aren't like that anymore. Right. But, okay. There's sort of the courts being in sort of the, the old Chicago school and then versus sort of progressives thing about it. But there's also this thing about sort of what's the difference between sort of more middle-of-the-road people, which I would put myself as, or maybe it's traditionalists. And I think, you know, part of it comes down to, I think Lena Khan and I both would say that antitrust is about protecting competition. And I always say, when people say, like, does the U.S. have a consumer welfare standard or a total surplus standard, I say that debate is missing the fact that it's not illegal in the U.S. to do things that harm consumers. Right. What's illegal is certain forms of conduct that do that are viewed as not being competition on the merits or viewed as harming competition. So we have sort of both this consumer welfare overlay coupled with this harm to competition. So I think she and I and people like her and people like me would say, oh, fine, it's about protecting competition. But what we mean by that, I think, turns out to be really different. And I think certainly in some cases, I would characterize the progressive view as more as pre- protecting specific competitors. And I would think, in fact, I think does risk chilling competition. But I think a huge amount of debate, though, is this thing that we have collectively, lawyers, politicians, economists, have never really defined what we mean by competition on the merits. Yet it plays a critical role. <laughs> it plays a critical role in when we assess things, but we've never been able to define what it means. 
And I think that's a big part of what we're seeing now is that the people say, well, what competition means we've got to protect little guys, we've got a lot of firms. And other people say, no, no, competition is sort of this, not a free-for-all, but you, know, you get to use the advantages you have, and there's just some set of restrictions on what counts as going too far. I think it's important because I think it's just we need to be clear about what it is we're debating. I think that is what bunch of us are debating is what constitutes competition. I mean, there's so, it seems like there's so many parts of this where it's almost impossible to have answers or guidelines. I mean, the question of acquisitions. Either acquisitions are a great thing because that's why, pe- that's why people enter the market and become entrepreneurs because they want to get bought out, or it's preventing competition, or, you know, it's, it's blocking a future competitor by buying them out. And sometimes it's one and sometimes it's the other, and they can both be true. How do you ever decide how to take that on? Not that's not the question. Well, how do you, no, how no, do you no, no, is exactly there a way to, to think about it? No, like the, I, mean, I think the problem in some way, I was going to suggest a way, except I've already <laughs> undermined it. It's even harder because you could, I mean, part of it, you could try to distinguish whether they're firms. Because look, a lot of, there are a lot of different reasons, I think, for big tech acquisitions, because those are ones who've gotten a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. So in a bunch of it, I think you really do want to keep having them because what it is, it's a way to, to reward people for pieces of you know, complementary intellectual property they're not developing, these are not firms that are going to go on to be competitors, okay? And on some level, it's a form of exclusive license, okay? And I think you do want to allow those. So then it's say, okay, so why wouldn't I have a rule that says if it's just, you know, this little piece of something, of course, it's like any other input. But what I'm worried about is when you're a firm that looks like you actually could grow to be a rival. Now, I think there's a merit to that, except the problem you're going to run into is then when firms are deciding what to do, they may say to themselves, look, the odds of being a successful rival are really low and there's a much higher payoff to being bought up. And so I better make sure I don't look like a firm that could become a rival and that you could actually start shaping what you do to make yourself a more desirable acquisition target. Not in the maybe traditional sense of, oh, I want to be the kind of firm that looks attractive to buy because I'm going to generate returns. It's, I want to be the kind of firm that's attractive to buy because it'll get through the merger authority. And so there's a problem there. But I do think, ultimately, though, we are going to have to try to do something like that and say, look, there are a bunch of acquisitions. It's fine. It's how you get IP. And there are other ones where it's not fine because these really are firms that, you know, they have the potential to be competitors. And that's really hard. But I, that's an area where I think we need specific reform. And I think there's a fairly broad consensus on this, that we do need to make it easier to challenge mergers based on potential competition. And I think, again, in, in thinking about that, for example, and this was proposed years and years ago, I'm going to forget by whom, but this whole thing of looking at adjacent markets, you shouldn't just ask, are they in the current market, but are they in the adjacent market? And then, of course, you have to have criteria for defining adjacency. But I think that that's something that can be done. I'm not sure we define in terms of markets. I think we might do more as, as this firm accumulating assets in another market that turn out to be transferable to the one in question. But I mean, that seems, that seems doable when the firms either merging or ones being acquired are you know, some decent size. But like Instagram was just a few people. Right. And Facebook's acquisition of Instagram either blocked a competitor or it made it Instagram the success that it is. One or the other. It was either great or it was terrible. Back in that time, how would you have applied this standard to them? So, all right, so I think 
look, this is something people generally said to criticize and said, look, there's zillions of potential competitors. So how are you ever going to pick which ones count? Is it? Right, exactly. I think one of the things is you would look for the growth trajectory. I'm not going to say growth rate because if you know had one person <laughs> and you go to 10, that's a big growth. But you'd look at the growth trajectory and see, is there a reason to think that this firm is starting to take off? And that you might be able to tell, you might get it wrong, but even when they're very small. And I think that there are people who would say that that, was the case with Instagram. I mean, there's a reason that you know, Facebook was worried about them. And that my sense, and I don't know, is that actually the firms in the industry can do more to tell who really is a threat fairly early on than a lot of people give them credit for, I think. Because they do look for ones that are starting to get the feedback, the cycle going, or to get the expectations going their way. Right? Because in these markets with network effects, that's going to be critical in these markets where consumers are making purchase decisions by being forward-looking and asking what's hot, what's going to grow. But that's the sort of thing we'd look at. And I, but also, and this is where we're going to have to, we'd have to change the standards. But if you went back and you did that and you said, oh, you know, now we appreciate this stuff more important you know, than the FTC did back then, I don't think it would make any difference to what you would do if you were the FTC under those rules because you'd say, look, I can't say what the name of it was, but I was involved in something that's consultant with the FTC looking at a merger. and we had a reasons to be concerned. And it had to do with taking something online, but the biggest firms at the time were all bricks and mortar. And we said, there's just no way we're going to be able to win claiming there's a separate online market, even though we were worried about this. And I, to this day, think we're absolutely right. And it would have been a waste of public's money to try to bring a case. So I think we need to have a change in the standards that's tilted towards the enforcers in this. And yes, there are going to be some errors, but there are already errors in the other way. A long-winded way of saying, I think there are things we can do. They're all highly imperfect, but you've got to make, you know, decide how you balance type one and type two errors. And I think we've gone too far in one direction, particularly on those. I mean, partially because it seems like that's probably likely the only way we're going to see, step back. If you're going to say what we're looking at is a world of Schumpeterian competition, and therefore, we shouldn't be worried about seeing really high market shares of incumbents today because they could be swept away by someone with a trivial share. Then we need to be worried about mergers that acquire people with trivial shares because they're the ones who could take it away. So I actually think some people try to use the Schumpeterian view of competition as a way to say, well, antitrust doesn't really have to worry about market power. Let's stay out of it. I think it's actually the opposite when it comes to things like dealing with nascent competitors. Schumpeterian view tells you you've got to be sort of more cautious about it and, you know, more aggressive antitrust policy. But then at the end of the day, are you still pessimistic that these will happen given the nature of the courts? I don't think it'll happen without legislation. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what um, you said. And what I'm pessimistic about legislation is I think this focus on big tech legislation as opposed to sort of generic legislation that applies across the economy. I think that's a mistake. I understand both politically, but also even economically, why people will say, well, wait a minute, but these firms, they're so quantitatively different, we feel they're qualitatively different. I understand why they're doing that, but I ultimately think it's a mistake. I think we need reform, but it should be economy-wide reform. I mean, one of the, one of the changes, and this is, I don't think this is necessarily something economists have a lot to say about, but is changing the burden of proof. It's not, the government doesn't have to prove it's anti-competitive. The the merging parties have to prove it's pro-competitive. Are you in favor of something like that? So 
I think the burdens are screwed up and I actually think economists should have something to say about it. But I think the, so I'll just say a couple of things. I do think we've gotten this, we're in this state where it is a problem that a lot of the economics of it, the analysis is sufficiently complicated and a lot of these issues, so whoever has the burden is going to lose. And that's a problem, right? That shouldn't be, because that's basically down as in finding we should just have some simple rule on who, who needs a court. We're going to have such strong presumptions. Off we go or something. Well, it's part of the problem is I'm not sure what the real standards are. And I'll say it the fun way. On the one hand, I think it appears like we simultaneously have it that it's too hard to establish the, initial, the prima facie case of saying that a merger is going to harm competition. But I also think it's too hard to establish efficiencies. It's incredible. I mean, some people have said that they think that the Sprint T-Mobile case I mentioned before is the only case where substantial efficiencies, actually the claim of that is what drove the outcome. Now, it's really hard to say because I think part of it is judges are worried about appeal and such is they tend to like pick which side wins and then say the other side's completely wrong. And we see this in a, a lot of things where, like with Section 2, there's supposed to be a balancing under the rule of reason, but essentially no cases when you get to the decisions talk about balance. I mean, there are a few, but it's like a handful. But I think a lot of us suspect actually judges do do the balancing, but then once they've decided which side should prevail, they then sort of just pile on to say that side was right and the other side didn't present evidence. So as I said, I think it's sort of messed up with both sides. So I guess I would be happy to say if you want to merge, you have to show that it's good, but then we need to make it a lot easier or not easier, but I think we need to take more seriously the efficiency claim. And I also say we're talking about the agencies, meaning the FTC and the DOJ, but when you get to the FCC, right, it's just a routine thing for them in a merger. They don't like it to say, well, we couldn't judge the efficiencies with certainty, therefore they get zero weight. And again, that's usually bad economics, bad decision theory, whatever. So, I mean, is there a system that you can point to that you think does a well, at least a better job than we do. I mean, because when you'd say the, whoever has the burden of proof has the harder, harder job, obviously. Well, with anything that the FCC also has to approve, then they have to approve it, but the DOJ or FTC can, can challenge it. So you've kind of got the two different burdens of proof right there, but one is not inherently, I think you're saying one is not inherently better than the other, and they can both get things wrong. Is there some system, a country, you know, who's gotten this better than we have? I don't know that anybody has. I mean, the problem is I don't know that much about other regimes, but I think probably as things go, the U.S. does a pretty good job. And that's why... Well, you, know, you don't think the Europeans, to put it more specifically, do a better job, or do you? I don't. Although, I mean, it is interesting, though. I mean, because when I was at the DOJ back in 2001, I mean, the DOJ was actually sort of actively fighting against the European Commission. And in fact... When I was in the division, I went over to Europe a few times because I was sort of viewed as the person in the middle who might help bridge the gap. And now the U.S. is sort of moving much more towards them. I, I think in a lot of ways the U.S. system is pretty good. As I say, I think the big problem is the courts have sort of gone off too far in one direction. And as I say, I think it's time for Congress to try to reset it and push things in the middle. And that is messy, the way the U.S. does it. but. Yeah, I don't know of anything that, that's better. Um, 
Well, I've been I've been looking at all the legislative proposals, so it's not obvious to me that any of those are are better. <laughs> oh no! The, 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 uh, let me just say the legislative proposals that have come out, the the big tech ones. Well, they're not all big tech. The, you know, Klobuchar is is generally applicable, and some of them are you know not just okay. But I mean, I haven't looked at Klobuchar's in a while, but I think that's much more the way to go though than the the big tech ones. I can't remember. I'm sure there are a bunch of things in Klobuchar's I disagree with, but I. As I recall, some of those is this resetting how you think about things and trying to undo bad presumptions. And I think that, you know, as I say, I'm in favor of that program. These big first, first, the burden of proof. I'm not sure if I can't remember which for which yeah. class of cases, but for a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah, I worry about that. I mean, part of the thing, let's let's talk about mergers and actually I'll bring up another one I was involved in with ATT Time Warner which did get a huge amount of attention, I think mainly because the Time Warner, both the media like to cover themselves, and then this whole issue with, wow, this is pretty wild, a conservative Republican administration going after a vertical merger. How did that happen? Does that have anything to do with CNN? But, you know, in the end, right, they're you know, undoing the merger. And AT&T says it wasn't a mistake. Maybe it was. But I think what's turned out to be the case of that is the vertical synergies, the parties claim, turned out not to be as big as they thought. And then all the harms the government claimed, oh, you're going to just be raking it in because you're going to have so much market power. That was also false. And look, I think a lot of mergers probably don't do what the parties thought they were going to do and they're less beneficial to them. But I'm also a big believer is you ought to let people make mistakes. And I actually think that's a lot of what we see in merger activity. It's not that they're particularly anti-competitive. It may be that a lot of them don't generate efficiencies. They may be empire building, but I sort of think we should just let people go out and make those mistakes. That's not what antitrust is trying to stop. One thing the new FTC or DHA antitrust chief can do is reform or rewrite the horizontal and vertical merger guidelines. I mean, that's a, a guidance document that is out of the executive branch. What do you think of that? So, I don't know. I mean, if I go back and think about it, 2010, I, you know, the huge thing was moving away from, say, how important market definition was and doing some sort of upward pricing pressure. And then with DOJ, FTC, if they're going to be in court, they're going to be arguing about market shares and concentration and relevant market. So I'm sort of torn. I mean, on one hand, the merger guidelines and, you know, and the rest of the world looks to them too. I mean, it's a, they're good. They spell a lot of stuff out. And I think they're very useful for helping you think about how the agencies think about things. But I think we still have this problem that how they're translating into what the courts do. Now, they clearly do have a big impact on the courts because now a lot of courts are looking at the hypothetical monopoly test and things like that. And in fact, I've complained sometimes publicly that the courts sitting the be under the misapprehension that the merger guidelines are a statute <laughs> and they, they give them too much weight. But, but I don't know. I don't think, I think the merger guidelines, they do have an effect and with a lag, but I think there is this problem that, again, there's a, different, a big difference between what the agencies do internally and what they do in court. And maybe, they, maybe that would be a thing to do is to rewrite the guidelines with more thinking about well, what does it mean for when we actually get to court as well. And, you know, there's some of that. I mean, we did talking about what sort of the thresholds were, you know, what HHI thresholds and stuff like that, which um, talking about that. But I know I still think that I guess I'll come back to that's not going to be enough, particularly because I think a lot of the places where the courts have run amok have to do with exclusionary behavior. 
And so I think, yeah, anyway, so I think that's the problem. They're just not going to speak to that. So with that, we should probably wrap it up. We've been talking for, um, well, almost an hour, I guess. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. We, uh, we really appreciate it. It's always fun talking to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the chance to talk to you. It was fun. Thanks.